too many people buy too much crap. I have to be around only a few beautiful things. Welcome back to another episode of Curious Objects and the Stories Behind Them, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm your host, Ben Miller, and before diving in, I'd like to draw your attention to a new book you may find very interesting, Classical Principles for Modern Design. It's by Thomas Jane, a New York-based interior decorator whose work is much admired by the editors of the magazine Antiques. In this beautifully illustrated book, Thomas Jane demonstrates the lessons in simplicity and balance that he learned from Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman Jr., So look for Classical Principles for Modern Design by Thomas Jane at your favorite bookstore or online retailer. My guest today is Wade Leger, a private collector in Louisiana who was actually featured in an article in the magazine Antiques by Chris Waddington. Wade is a collector, but he's also a restorer, specifically of old Louisiana houses. And today, we're talking about the one that he actually lives in, a 19th century Greek revival plantation house that's been burned, looted, neglected, and pulled across the earth by mule and by truck. So forget about theoretical knowledge. Close your art history textbooks. This is real life inside a real object. You'll want to visit themagazineantiques.com to see photos of the house and its contents, and one intriguing or I'd even say haunting, antique photograph of its former owners. Thanks so much to everyone who has taken the time to send feedback on the podcast and ideas for future interviews. I love hearing from you, so please send an email to podcast at themagazineantiques.com. Thanks also for leaving a rating or a review on iTunes. Now let's jump in with Wade Leger. Wade Leger, thanks for joining me. You bet. Now, Typically on this podcast, I'm talking with people who have a specific object, a piece of furniture, a piece of jewelry, a painting, some relatively small and well-defined piece. And in your case, we're talking about something a little bigger than that, which is to say your entire house. So for listeners who don't have a photograph in front of them, tell me a little bit about the the architectural style of the house and, and its appearance. It has a very impressive colonnade across the front. Well, it's uh, um, it's basically three rooms across the front. The house is 52 feet wide, and, uh, approximately, and three equal-sized rooms. And then behind those three rooms are three additional rooms. And then you have a, you know, a, basically a porch that spans the distance in front of the house. But then there's also a porch in the back of the house. And these porches all fall under the same hip roof, and there are no extensions. But on the rear porch, you have a, a room on each end of the porch and uh, our gallery. And those are called uh, cabinets, and uh, they're just small rooms. Today, we use these cabinet rooms as bathrooms. Well, when the house was built, not to say they weren't used as a bathroom. There could have been, you know, chambers and commodes in there, but... Typically, there was a, a, a place away from the house <clears throat> for those uses. So these cabinet rooms, I believe, were just, uh, you know, originally maybe storage rooms. This is a, a house that uh, is actually not in its original location anymore. Is that correct? Not at all. No. The house was built uh, closer to New Orleans, 
And uh, it was a river roadhouse, meaning it was built along the um, Mississippi River and by a family uh, who uh, was uh, made money uh, farming sugarcane. There were some things uh, that allowed this to happen out of my control, and one of them was moving the house. Uh, that's an expensive endeavor, and I was able to make a deal uh, with um, someone in order to get this done. And, uh, you know, there's some reasons out of my control that I actually did this project, but you know, I you know, don't really recommend it. <laughs> Well, so tell me, tell me a little about this house. It's uh, it's a Greek revival style. You know, it was um, originally raised seven, eight feet off of the ground for reasons of flood control issues. You know, back in the nineteenth century, there was no levee, no flood control whatsoever. Folks stored dried goods and other things, uh, and oftentimes there would just be wooden walls established between the piers. You know, the supports for the house itself, and that would be stored lock and key. Sometimes some houses were developed nicer than others, these basements, uh, but they weren't in the ground. You know, they were above ground. And Yeah, so in the 19, I guess, 30s, the Corps of Engineers uh, decided to increase the size of the levees in that part of the world, and they began moving some of these houses. And I understand that, you know, just as many more were destroyed as were saved. But um, once they were moved 80 yards or more, they would not be raised seven or eight feet off the ground again. They would only be four feet or so on the ground. And um, that was the case with this house. And uh, the original footprint of this house is actually underwater inside the levee. Really? Yep. So the whole farm, the whole plantation is is no more. It's no more. Now, sugarcane is still farmed uh, in that area and actually on the land where the house was. But, um, you know, all the glory of those days is long gone. Let's try to put this into a little bit of historical context. So the house was constructed in the 1840s and presumably built by a slave-owning agricultural family. Yes. Do you know the family who uh, who built it? I have a photograph uh, dated uh, 1899, I believe, and it is a photograph of the family members, and, and oddly enough, they're standing at the Mississippi, and the Mississippi has floating ice in it. Evidently, there was a strong freeze that year, and um, these family members... Uh, it looks like some brothers and sisters or maybe a man and his his wife, but um, certainly interesting. You know, there's some travel trunks in the photo. I don't know if they're waiting for a, a, a boat or a paddle wheel, but certainly with these ice chunks, I can't see navigation at that period. They almost look stranded. But as I'm understanding, they're standing, you know, on their at, at the Mississippi on their property. That's the only little hint of evidence I have. Let me say this. The town that the house was built in was a very prosperous river town in the 19th century, certainly before the war. And um, and when I mean prosperous, I mean prosperous. Many uh, other houses in the area, uh, obviously not densely populated, but populated. And today, uh, there's literally nothing there. It's It's almost shocking. Because it's it's uh, there's nothing but river 
activity inside the levee. There was nothing on the outside. I mean, there are some chemical and petrol plants downriver and upriver from there, but there is no population. How times have changed. Yes. So what do you think likely happened to this house during and after the, in the aftermath of the Civil War? Well, they did the best they could, you know, I mean, you know, that's, that's it, you know, I mean, they continued to do what they could. And there is some history of the house at the turn of the century by uh, people who lived in it. And um, there were some tales written and some stories uh, written and some archives uh, actually have seen some other photographs that date a little bit later into the early 1900s. And but nothing, nothing, you know, nothing that strikes anything interesting, you know, other than just ordinary life. The house is pretty cool in the fact that uh, the original plaster was still on the walls in the house. Now, this plaster was covered over with board and it was, I guess, sheetrock applied to these boards. So uh, the house had a fire in 2007 and it almost burnt to the ground. And luckily, uh, the fire department was able to put the fire out. And at that time, the house had carpet, it had sheetrock, it had a sheetrock ceiling on the interior. Well, all of this material had to be gutted. Wow. And um, in doing so, the owners I bought the house from had no idea this original plaster was underneath all of this. And it was in terrible condition. I mean, you can imagine these boards being nailed to plaster and being moved. When the core moved it, it was moved could have been moved by animals, uh, mules or, or, you know, horses. Um, it's not always, they weren't always moved by, um, machinery. Really? Yeah. And so there would have been a lot of jerking and a lot of, it wouldn't have been a smooth process. But what the color of the walls were pale yellow, a very pale green and a type of very Robin's egg light blue color and those were the three colors and those three there were six rooms and you know two rooms were blue two rooms were green two rooms were yellow (laughs) and it was quite something to see it mimicked mother nature is is what it did you know and this you know the sun the blue skies and the green all around us and how do you how do you restore that you have a decision to make you can you can live with it as it is you can attempt to skim coat over it which would essentially remove all the color or you could take it down and start from scratch. And I chose to take it down and start from scratch. That was just, it, it, it was so bad. It was uh, unsightly. I see. Anyways, I was lucky to have enough um, people to help. And um, we took this broken plaster down and I kept many samples, obviously. And my hope, I actually did one room in the yellow and that room is in the, was published in the magazine. And it came out great. You know, you're able to buy these same product, milk paint, today. And milk paint is a wonderful thing. And, and you know, if a wall has fresh plaster on it, um, it readily absorbs this milk paint uh, quite easily. And it's up to you how many coats you want to put on of this stuff. But um, you can mimic 19th century quite easily uh, these days. And you've, uh, you've actually learned quite a bit about 19th century construction methods, right? Well, again you know, trial and error. Sure, sure. But, uh, you know, it's not everyone who would reconstruct plaster walls of, of an 1840s house. Oh, you know, I, suddenly, you know, I was in that reality is what it was. It wasn't anything else. That I, I didn't think about 
what I was going to do necessarily. I just saw an opportunity to buy the house. And then when I was able to make the deal to move it, uh, I already had the land. I thought, you know, here's my chance if I want it. Now, after the house was moved, when the levees were put into place, you say in the 1930s, do you know if the ownership of the house remained in the same family at that point? or uh... not? it changed hands. I don't know how many times, but the house, when it caught fire in 2007, it was being used as a rent house. And the people living there had been there for 30 years, I understand. And, and it was in very nice condition before the fire because I've seen a photo of it. And unfortunately, after the fire, it was vandalized. And I know this for a fact that the neighbors have, I asked the neighbors, you know, were, were there any mantles, you know, fireplace mantles? Well, yes, they were there. And then it seemed like every three months or so, uh, the house sat empty, something would go missing. Mm. Um, and then windows would become broken. And, you know, luckily the people who bought the house after the fire removed all of the French doors and, and, and the interior doors. When I first looked at the house, I thought, well, man, there are no doors on this house. It's only boarded up by plywood. I'm just not interested. And the owner told me that they had removed the doors and that the doors were in storage on their property. And he invited me to come and take a look. And so, of course, that piqued my interest more. And when I saw the doors, I basically made up my mind to make a slightly better offer. And we were able to make the deal. They're the reason why I bought the house. And it's not just because of the doors, but the doors are incredibly beautiful. For instance, the glazed doors, uh, what I call French doors, the double doors, uh, they have a double panel, which is unusual. So there's a large panel at the bottom, and then above that is a more narrow panel. And it's just a nice, nice touch. And then the interior doors, they're basically uh, single doors, no glass, solid wood, and the doors are incredibly heavy. You know, the, when the house was built, these large trees, the center of these large trees were kept for door making. And that the reason being was the heart of a tree was the tightest grain, and that grain would not warp. So you could make a door, and it would remain plumb as a door as long as you, you use the heart of a tree. That's yeah. fascinating. I didn't realize that. And I would imagine that, in part because of that reason, doors would be very appealing objects for vandals to, to steal and has oh, yeah. reclaimed architectural elements. That and the mantles uh, or the things that always get you know stolen. Well, and I suppose sometimes they're stolen and other times the owners just decide to cannibalize the house. That's possible. I mean, it, it's, it's like when you go to New Orleans and you go around New Orleans and you see, you know, great things. But then you go to the French Quarter and then you start to see the uh, early doors in the French Quarter and all. And it just harkens back to another time, I guess. Let me change gears for a second and ask a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this kind of thing. Uh, you, you were born and raised in Louisiana, correct? Yeah. Were you surrounded by antiques as a kid? Is that something your, your parents were into? Not so much. Um, my mother did have a, a shop with her sister, and for this, it was basically a retail new things. But we would take a trip to Dallas to go to this market. And inside of this market, 
they did have old shops. And um, I remember being blown away by the history of some of these things I was seeing. And then also, I guess I had a um, my dad's sister was in uh, another part of the world in the Mideast, in the Philippines, and in England. Her husband was a drill instructor for an oil company, and they would send um, stamps and coins um, to me. And uh, I, I was, you know, fascinated by what what some of these things, what I was looking at. So I guess I would grab an encyclopedia and I guess try to figure out where, what is it like, where these things are coming from. I could always daydream. When there was nothing else to do, I would always daydream about some aspect of antiquity. And I didn't have any experience whatsoever with an old uh, house. But I did like them. I remember taking quite a few tours of early houses. Matter of fact, one thing comes to mind, we would take a boat to an area called New Roads, which is north of Baton Rouge. And there, there was a, an old Mississippi River outlet. And it's no longer part of the Mississippi. And actually, the water's very clear there. But there's a lot of skiing and there's a lot of houses there. But on one side of it, uh, this, this waterway is filled, lined with plantations. I was always very keen to... Uh, take the truck. I guess I just got my driver's license, and I was too embarrassed to tell my dad that I was. You know, I'd make up a story like I need to go to the store or something, and uh, I would go because my folks they wouldn't. I don't think spend too much time driving around looking at old houses. But I sure fancied it. I've I've owned a lot of things that I have sold. You know, I, my first house. I have a small historic Acadian house. That is on the property, and uh, that was in Lafayette uh, near the Interstate 10 highway system, and it was abandoned, and they were going to tear it down, and by word of mouth, I found out about it, and um, I was able to buy it. It took me a couple of years to finally move it. Finally got the little house, and I guess moved in it in 2007, some, something around that year. And I've been living in that little house up until uh, about a year ago now. So I, I, you know, I, that, that house, uh, I was able to figure out a little bit more, of, you know, how plaster might work. And then the more modern things like plumbing and electrical and, you know, you need all those things these days. Or certainly I do. But and, and there are some other buildings here on the property. I have a couple of outbuildings that I rescued. Um, and uh, there's another single room house that appears to have been a larger part of a larger house, but that I rescued. And, you know, uh, it, it, I'm not looking to rescue any more buildings uh, for this property at all. And um, you hit your quota. Yes. Oh, God, yes. Interested in the ins and outs of doors? The rational handling of rooms in general, color, the historical tradition. These are all chapter headings in interior designer Thomas Jane's new book, Classical Principles for Modern Design, from Monticelli Press. Jane advocates a middle road between innovation and tradition, reminding us that comfort in a home is paramount, and that good design is as often a product of sensitivity to the past as it is of inklings of the future. Find Classical Principles of Modern Design at a bookstore near you or at monticellipress.com. And with that, let's get back to Wade Leger. Well, now let's talk a bit about the, the contents of the house, because you've 
filled this house with some very interesting antique objects. Antique, great antiques are cheap these days. At least they are at the auctions I'm browsing. You know why that is? I think just things are out of style. Uh, great American, you know, antiques uh, are just uh, there are a lot of them out there these days coming up for sale. And if you're patient, uh, you can nab a you know very nice uh, piece that will. You know, we'll never go out of style. You know, a lot of things were built. And the day they were built, they were just basically, you know, crap, junk. And, uh, you know, you, you want to try to stay away from those things, I believe. In terms of the pieces that you've been collecting for the house, are you looking for pieces that are consistent with the, the period of the house or pieces that have regional connections? Or is this more about lifestyle and, and, and just finding nice and and beautiful things to live with. Basically all three. I have been collecting regional material for 20 years plus. You know, luckily in South Louisiana, there's an, an abundance of uh, regional antiques, material culture left in the form of, you know, furniture, in the form of uh, textiles, in the form of uh, buildings and outbuildings, in the form of more primitive items like you know, objects used for cooking. You know, there, there's uh, there are a lot of Louisiana-related antiques out there that, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, before we had, you know, the Internet and, and smartphones, it was, the chase was kind of fun. You know, you could talk to some people, and then someone would say, well, you know, in this barn, on this person's property, I remember seeing such and such. And, you know, it was it was always fun. You could always find some pretty cool stuff. You know, there, there are some collections out there, you know, down here that are pretty amazing. I like the, uh, the New York furniture makers and, and the things I like. I like Baltimore as well, Boston as well. So it co I cover the gamut, really. So you, you've got pieces from all across the, the eastern seaboard then? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, frankly, the original owners of the house might well have been buying furniture from uh, from New York just as, as they might have been buying furniture from England. Absolutely. I mean, you had retailers in New Orleans selling um, not only New Orleans-made things, but also uh, retailing for furniture from other parts of the East Coast. The Mid-Atlantic States, certainly. Just, uh, you know, the, the best, some of the best um, purveyors of antiques and, and furniture and, and whatnot or from that part of the, uh, of the eastern seaboard so you know it's not hard if you wait and wait and you can find you know these there are some great like mississippi for instance there are some great eastern seaboard pieces coming out of these houses in mississippi and you know what's funny is they have been in these same houses since they were purchased in you know, the first half of the 19th century. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And their climate in, you know, once you get going up a few, you know, a state or so, it's just less humid. And so, the, you know, things, the, the preservation of, of material is better than it is, say, in New Orleans with all the humidity. So let's go back for a second. I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about the sources of these objects, because you're not just buying at auction houses. You are buying at auction houses, but it sounds like there are other ways that you've come across interesting pieces. It's kind of word of mouth. I have a friend in California who uh, pays attention to estate sales around Los Angeles. I have a friend in uh, 
uh, out, an hour outside of Pittsburgh who does some traveling in that part of the world. Uh, he's from here uh, originally. Well, they, I got to know them all here. You know, there's an auction house uh, in, in New Hampshire, and then uh, there are a couple all the way down that uh, I pay attention to. And uh, that, you know, there's always something. But there are some great auction houses in New Orleans. So there's always something coming up. There's a good one in Mississippi. There's a there's been some great auctions recently that have come out of Alabama. Christie's had an amazing auction recently of contents of a house in Alabama. Uh, I mean, just amazing. Do you have a particular favorite piece in your house right now that you'd like to tell listeners about? There was a, a cherry and cypress plantation desk that is Greek revival in style. I would guess 1830s. It has an amphitheater interior, which just means uh, it's four-tiered or four-leveled with drawers on the first two levels, and then basically arched openings. The shelving are all, they're finished with scalloped edges in cherry. So in other words, most of the shelf is cypress, but then the very front of it is the scalloped edge decorated piece in cherry. And uh, it came up for auction in Mississippi of all places. And um, I, I feel very fortunate to have gotten it. That has become a favorite piece of mine simply because we use it every day. There's nothing to make you fall in love with a piece like putting it to good use. I know. it. It's so compartmentalized that it stores last week's stuff, last month's stuff, and last year's stuff. You know, so I can I know where last year's things are. I know where the current things are. And I'm just tickled pink to have it. I'll be honest with you. It's, you know, it, it's just a very fine thing. And, and what's funny is the man who delivered it to me, he said, uh, did you see this thing? I said, well, is it nice? He said, oh, it's nice. He said, normally you find a signature on pieces like this. But he said, I, I loading it up, I looked. He said, I, I didn't see a signature. Now, this man handles a lot of stuff him to talk nicely about it. I, I couldn't wait to finally open it. <laughs> He's telling me all this and, you know, I'm, I'm, this is the first time I'm seeing it because I only bought it uh, online, you know. That was a pleasant surprise. Very much. It exceeded my expectations. And I have to say, I think that speaking of this notion that using something can make you love it more, I'm sure you could say exactly the same thing about your house. And, and one of the interesting things to me about the process of restoring a house to live in is it's very different from the process of restoring a house to make it into a museum, for example, where people will come in and have the opportunity to see this wonderful historical relic, but nobody's going to have the chance to experience what it was like really to to live in it and, and to see the purpose that it was made for. But you, day in and day out, have that experience. You, as you say, you, you, you've got a modern kitchen and certain modern conveniences, but you're also in a very real sense surrounded by the vestiges of this almost 200-year-old culture. Tell me a bit about, do you feel closeness? Do you feel sometimes that you're living in a time machine? Do you imagine the families that have come before you? What's what's the daily experience like of, of living in a house with that kind of a history? I suppose, I guess, I do feel privileged uh, in some aspects. But again, the restoration of it was so difficult and took so long and basically you know, bankrupted me for, you know, four years that I feel like I did put some, you know, effort into its history. Uh, I don't know. It, I don't think about those 
terms too much. I mean, it's just really shadow lines at the end of the day. And, you know, when I, what I mean by shadow lines is it's just the uh, detail and molding sequence, I guess, in parts of the house that you only see in a, a certain time in the 19th century. And, you know, the, living in an old house uh, is interesting. I love the floor plan of the house, and that's something I wanted to mention. That was one of my favorite, that was my favorite thing about the house when I saw it for the first time was the floor plan. And it just simply allowed for uh, a, two separate apartments on both ends of the house. I mean, you know, one end of the house mimics exactly the other end. The doors are in the same place. The rooms are the same size. There are no surprises, no weird turns. There are no hallways. And I thought, well, you know, this is pretty cool. I mean, I don't, you know, I had a, a girlfriend at the time that we had been together for many years. And I certainly hope did not see that changing. Matter of fact, we were in the house together today. She's now my fiance, but she has her side and I, and I have mine. And of course, we, you know, do share the same side together often. However, when she needs to, she's an attorney, when she needs to sit down and do her work, or, you know, if, if for whatever reason I'm doing something on my side. So it, it allows for some freedom for us some space and some elbow room and uh i guess ben franklin is right about uh good fences making good neighbors huh well and and you know you want a nice fence <laughs> <laughs> let me move in the direction of wrapping up here i want to ask you a couple of questions that i ask all of my guests the first one is what is a mistake that you see other collectors or people who are involved in this kind of uh, restoration area what's one mistake that you see them making that you would caution them against i would say you know it's good to collect and to have uh, an old building you love um you want to make the house for yourself to live in i would caution against uh, not making it as museum as you might have intended to or or, or or as i guess authentic as you might have intended to because, you know, you want things to work, you want to live in it, and you need it. Uh, you may want to multi-use uh, the building. In other words, you may want to event rental uh, the building. Or you may have some other idea later down the road that you don't see coming, and you may want to allow yourself some room to do that. As far as collecting, too many people buy too much crap. And <laughs> it's true. And too many people uh, hoard too many collectors have too many things. I have to be around only a few uh, beautiful things. And I guess that's different in everyone's mind and taste. But I do see a lot of junk uh, amongst uh, a lot of people's beauty. Or, you know, you'll see some beautiful things and then a lot of junk. And, you know, you got to wonder, you know, I mean, so collecting is, you know, I'm a poor man's you know, the classical dealer or, or, or uh, buyer, you know, this is the you know, poor version of the classics over here. I do not have a great budget to collect. And I'm very fortunate these days that how affordable, great American pieces have become. 15 years ago, it was very different. You know, things had strong value 
and great things had even stronger value. And the only thing that has maintained its value is the art. Actually, the art has gone up. Regional art has skyrocketed, and art in particular has not fallen. Furniture and other objects of art, decorative arts, people are, I mean, candlesticks don't even sell anymore. I don't care how nice, how decorated the furniture, you know, it is shocking that many things European will find buyers at auction with what I consider kind of eye-opening prices. And however, the much more refined much more elegant, much more beautiful American piece is just sitting there with with no interest. Is there any other advice that you would give to a listener who, for example, is listening to you right now and thinking maybe he or she wants to put some sweat equity into a house and uh, and restore it and live in a, a beautiful historic home? What advice would you give to someone who's thinking about just starting out in that process? Um, consider the elements, uh, the weather, Mother Nature, for one, and consider the fact that it's not going to go as planned. Consider your budget and consider the time it takes uh, on your lifestyle. In other words, this sweat equity you're talking about, well, you need the time to uh, revamp and revive yourself from this sweat equity. Well, you're normally so broke you can't even take a vacation. And you're normally so tired, you don't even want to. So, you know, depending on whether you have to move the house and, or, you know, if it's just a mild restoration, that's fine. But um, old buildings, you know, are great. I would just say, you know, be, do it, you know, you have to have a come to Jesus moment about do I really want to get involved with this or not? I guess that, you know, of course, price, if you can get involved in something on the cheap, and then by all means, it's probably worth it. But if it's going to be a struggle, and it's going to be a struggle for a little while, and that little while turns into a little bit longer, because of things out of your control, it gets to be a thorn in your side. And, you know, I can remember many times, people saying, well, you know, you don't come to New Orleans anymore. I'm like, listen, I got a list of reasons why you don't see me anymore. The top of the list is money. The next thing is I'm too tired. And, you know, the third thing is, is, you know, I got to start back up on this in the next day or two and I'll be driving back from New Orleans. I'm not about to. It's just too much. I know that there are many beautiful, many beautiful properties that need restoration in many parts of the United States. And, you know, I would tell anyone to certainly consider that. But. Tools break, for instance, and then suddenly you're sitting there, you're making no progress whatsoever, and this dream starts to seem like a bit of a waste of time. Maybe that—that's the reality of it. You know, it's—it's it's, you know, oh, you look and you—you you have rose-colored glasses. Well, that may be true, but the reality is, it—it's a—you uh, have to have a lot of patience. If, if you, you know, if you embark on something that is maybe more than you can handle, I've heard of pretty amazing stories of, of, of people doing just that, buying into more that they could handle. 
often your know, building will just stay tarped for years because they can't even get the you know the roof can't even come together and that mm-hmm. for whatever reason a surprise in their life an injury or this that and the other if you aren't a good cook get something good to eat you know well there you have it hard to argue with that that's all for this episode. Thanks to my guest, Wade Leger. Don't forget to check out the photos on themagazineantiques.com and send me your thoughts and suggestions at podcast at themagazineantiques.com. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss future episodes. Next up, we're going to have a really exciting special two-part episode straight from the Winter Antique Show here in New York City, where I'll be talking with a host of dealers about objects of all stripes. You won't want to miss it. In the meantime, if you're a lover of great design from any era, I invite you to check out the Magazine Antique's sister publication, Modern Magazine. Modern provides a lively, yet discerning take on the world of late 20th century and contemporary design and decorative arts, offering information and inspiration to collectors and decorators alike. Take a look and subscribe at modernmag.com. Curious Objects is a podcast from the Magazine Antiques. Our editor is Sammy Delati. Music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm your host, Ben Miller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.